You can be a Baptist, you can be a Presbyterian, you can be a Pentecostal, you can be a Methodist. If you're not trusting in Jesus alone for salvation, you're only part of the visible church here on earth, but you're not really part of the invisible church, the true body of Christ. That's all true believers. We're of one body. We need to act that way. And just like one body has one spirit, we also have one spirit, the Holy Spirit, who indwells all believers from the moment uh, we first believe. We have one hope of our calling. And uh, we've been called to be set apart for God's work and God's, God's purpose. You know, a lot of Christians are getting depressed because they're, you know, watching the news and studying their Bible. We've got to understand, look, our hope is not in the things of this world. Okay? I think we should be good citizens. Okay? But our hope is not in America. Amen. And ultimately, we're citizens of America, but ultimately, we're citizens of the kingdom of God, Amen. the heavenly Jerusalem. So our hope is not in the things uh, of this world. This, thing, this, this whole experiment with freedom that America has had, this stuff is coming down. And, um, you know, we pray to God and we hope for revival, but our, our hope is not of this world. Our hope is in Jesus. And he has given us a powerful calling. And anytime you feel like you're not as important as, I don't know, President Joe Biden or Bill Gates or Donald Trump or whatever. And let me tell you, you have a higher calling than they have. And if a, guy, if a guy becomes a president of the United States or a congressman and a senator, and he also happens to be a Christian, the Christian calling is even higher than the politically powerful calling. And, um, but we need to walk worthy with that calling. Okay. Um, you know, there's a lot of great football teams that they expect their football players to represent that team even off the field. And um, to act like, well, we're not, you know, one of these other NFL franchises. Our franchise, you know, we do things the right way. We're dedicated um, uh, to the sport and to our team even, even when we're not showing up for practice or a game. And um, but we Christians just act like you know oh, I'm, I'm you know I'm nobody special and this and that and blah blah blah. Hey, look, the all-powerful God indwells you and is working through you, and you need to act consistently with that calling. I need to act consistently um, with that calling. And so then last week we looked at. Paul says, so there's only one body and one spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay? And so he says that we have one Lord, and we talked about that last week as well. You know? I mean, the day could come when our, our leaders could tell us, hey, you got to get with our program. You know, and Jesus told us, give to Caesars what is Caesars. And to God, what is God's? But right now, Caesar's asking for what only rightly belongs to God. The ancient Jews understood this. They refused to say Caesar is Lord. The ancient Christians understood this, and they refused to say Caesar is Lord. They said Jesus is Lord. It makes me wonder how many of us will just, whatever the government tells us to do, we'll do. 
And I admit, you know, I care about the safety of the people here. So when the government said, shut down for 15 days, we shut down for 15 days. Then they'd say, well, we got to shut down longer to, to level the, the curve. And I thought, okay, well, I want to take care of my people, so that's what we'll do. But then all of a sudden, riots were going on from leftists like Antifa. And all of a sudden, they were saying social justice, which is just code for neo-Marxism, that message is more important than social distancing. And all of a sudden, I realized, oh, Caesar is asking for what only belongs to God. And so we started meeting secretly in the homes. And then, um, you know, eventually the churches started opening up and stuff like that. And, um, you know, moving into our own building. We're going to have our own autonomy and stuff like that. And so, you know, thank you, government, for your medical political advice or whatever, but we're going to make, we're going to pray and make the decisions that we think God has called us to. But, um, you know, God instituted the church. Okay, that was God's idea. And God also instituted the government. So God's, God is the ultimate, infinite expert on government and on church. And does anywhere in the Bible, does it say that the head of the, the government is the head of the church? No. My Bible says Christ is the head of the church. Okay? My Bible tells me that we have one Lord, and his name is Jesus. And we're gonna, I will tell the government leaders, we are going to be the best citizens you could ever have. But when government goes bad, it declares war on the good citizens, and it comes after the bad ones. And I'm, I'm telling you, we're, we're coming very close to a day where we might just shut down police departments kind of like Adolf Hitler did and then hire criminals to do the government's work. And um, you think the police departments are bad now because of, you know, the 1% guys that are bad cops. Wait till you see what's coming down. Um... Will gave me a thing written by James Bovard, one of my, my favorite freedom-defending journalists, and uh, talking about how the Biden administration is, is trying to encourage people to narc on one another, using the post office to, to spy on us and pass over information. It would be unconstitutional for the FBI to spy on you, but the post office can get this information, get away with it, and then pass it on. To the powers that be. It's a crazy time to be alive. And so we've we got to, you know, make your decision. You should, hopefully you've made it already when you trust in Jesus. But if, if you didn't make a decision in this area, you just got to, we've got one master. we got one Lord, okay? His name's not Obama. It's not Biden or whoever's really calling the shots right now. I don't know, okay? It's not the United Nations. It's not the World Economic Forum. Uh, it's not Fauci, okay? We got one Lord. And his name is Jesus. Amen. And if that doesn't impress the powers that be, I pity you. Like C.S. Lewis said, you know, our God, our Lord, he is good. But he is not tame.
He's the lamb who was slain. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And um, when I trust in Jesus for salvation, I, I submitted to Jesus. I said, hey, you won. You won, Jesus. Okay? It's like uh, shortly after getting saved, Father Chuck Laverde, uh, in the Catholic Charismatic Movement, an Italian priest from Chicago, he saw me, and I had a like, semi-Mohican haircut. I was wearing a tight shirt and was lifting weights heavy and egotistical. And, um, and that's when I started crying, by the way, on that day, because I prayed that God would take away my, uh, my pride and my arrogance. And God's still working on me in that area. But I started bawling. I started crying like a little. And I grew up in New Jersey. They always say, you're a guy. Don't cry. And I started crying. So as I'm crying, I'm behind everybody. So it's like, good, nobody's seeing me. I had led a Navy guy, Bob Ryer, to the Lord that day. We know Bob, Bob this goes back to 1981. I was a new believer. And, and, um, and he thought, wow, a Marine leading a Navy guy to Christ. And so he called me up front to talk to everybody. And so I went up there crying like a baby. I was like, oh, you know, I, yeah, Lord, I was praying to take away my pride, but not all at once. And uh, embarrassing me in front of like 100 people. And, uh, and, uh, but afterwards... You know, I think God gave a word of wisdom to Father Chuck Laverde, and he looked at me. He said, uh, they, used, they called me Ferno back there. He said, hey, Ferno, he said, uh, who's, the, who's the strongest man who ever lived? And I thought I was real proud of myself because I knew enough of the Bible to know the answer, I thought. I said, Samson. And he said, no, Jesus. is Jesus, Ferno. <laughs> and so it's just like, so, you know, don't be intimidated by the Putins of this world, okay? And the dictators of this world. We're not talking about Samson. We're talking about King Jesus. And that's the one Lord that we have, okay? So we have one Lord, okay? And um, he's coming back. He's going to rescue us. We might get beat on before that happens, but he's coming back, okay? And we have one Lord, so, you know, we'll be the best citizens that Caesar could ever ask for, but if they want to declare war on the good citizens and promote evil, then we're going to be like the Christians in the book of Acts. And uh, so we have one Lord. That should unite us. Why aren't we united sometimes? Because we're really not serving the Lord, we're serving our own interests. Remember, uh, I said it a couple weeks ago, if we're going to be united, it's because we have one agenda. And that one agenda is called the mind of Christ. It's called the kingdom of God. But if we come here with different minds, different agendas, we're not going to be united. Okay? Now, we want to be united, but we want to be united in truth and in Christ. So we have one Lord. That should unite us. We have one faith. One faith. The word faith is used in many different ways in the scriptures. Um, I think what it's talking about is the body of truth that was passed on to us from the apostles. Let me repeat that. The one faith is the one true faith, the body of truth that was passed on to us from the apostles. Look at Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3. Jude, verse 3, this is the half, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. And Jude said, Beloved, while I was very diligent 
to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So he's saying, I wanted to write to you about nice stuff, mellow stuff, stuff we agree on. I wanted to give you a feel-good message. By the way, there's nothing wrong with a feel-good message if everything's going great. And God just wants to encourage us and comfort us and all. But most of the time in a cursed creation, it's not that way. He wanted to write about their, their common salvation. and Instead, he had to encourage them to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. So in, in other words, and he mentions it, that false teachers crept into the church unnoticed who were preaching a false gospel. Okay? And... Um, and so basically, um, this is what Paul's talking about here, that body of truth that was passed on to us from the apostles. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 23. Galatians 1, 23. But they were hearing only, he said, he said I was unknown, by face, Paul was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, the southern region of Israel, uh, where uh, Jerusalem was. He was unknown by face to the church, by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only, so they didn't, they couldn't even pick Paul out of a lineup. But they heard, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches what, the faith, which he once tried to destroy. So Paul did use the word faith. In this context, where faith meant the body of doctrines or teachings or beliefs that defined what it meant to be a Christian. And that's the way I think he's using it here. Not all, commentaries, uh, not all commentators agree, but I think that's what he's saying. What, what unites us? The one Lord, Jesus, unites us, but also the one faith the doctrines of beliefs about him. Well, what were those doctrines? Because the Bible teaches literally thousands of things. Okay? And we don't agree on thousands of things. So that's why we got the Methodists and the Presbyterians who think you should baptize infants. And the Baptists and the Assemblies of God who say, no, you should only baptize people who are old enough to understand the gospel. We disagree on non-essential areas. Okay? Um, but Paul is saying here that there is a core doctrine, a statement of faith, some core doctrines that if you don't uphold these, um, you're going to have a hard time convincing him that you really are a Christian. Okay? What defines us as Christians? You know, by the way, when I teach these to, to people, even high school students, it's like, wow, you know, as I'm teaching, they're like, wow, that's, that, that's obvious, that's obvious, that's obvious. Yeah, but the half hour before, when I asked them, I got a whiteboard, I got a marker. Okay, we're Christians. We're not Hindus, we're not Buddhists, uh, we're not religiously Jews, we're not Muslims. What makes us Christians? And during that half hour, it takes about 10 minutes before I get... Maybe the first suggestion, that's good enough to write on the board. But, I mean, it's, it's like we kind of know that we're Christians. 
But we often forget, what are those most important doctrines that we should uphold as Christians? I mean, if you're searching for a church, how do you know if you're going to a church or a cult unless you have these doctrines? And, uh, and so what were they? Well, I mean, there were ancient creeds. The, the, the early church, the apostles, when they would preach on Sundays, okay, they preached the Old Testament. It was their first Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament. However, so many of the Jews interpreted, like Paul did before he got saved, interpreted the Old Testament legalistically. They were looking for rules and regulations. And now when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he found out, oh, I was supposed to interpret it's a new guy. You got a new hermeneutic, new way to interpret the scriptures. I was supposed to interpret the Old Testament Christocentrically. I was supposed to look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Okay? Not focus on the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, loving God, everything I got, loving my neighbor as myself. I'm supposed to focus on the Lord as my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm supposed to focus on the Old Testament prophecies pointing forward to Jesus. So until the New Testament was written, all the early church had to preach on was the Old Testament, probably the sermon notes of Jesus. Okay, And so what they had to do was come up with these creeds, these ancient creeds or hymns, which were either stated or sung in the early church while it was still heavily Jewish. And we can find some of these creeds in, like Romans 10.9 became a baptismal formula, but that ancient creed says that uh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, instead of Caesar is Lord, remember, one Lord. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That was one of those ancient creeds that was kind of an overview of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The faith that unites us now, 2,000 years later. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 15. Here's another ancient creed that was recited or sung in the early church. This one goes back to just within a few years, maybe even within one year, of, of the crucifixion, Paul uses official rabbinical language for the passing on of a creed or passing on oral tradition from a rabbi uh, to his disciples when he says, um, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. And then here's this ancient creed, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, as part of the faith, once we're all delivered to the saints. You know, what did Rob Bell say when he just started to go heretical and postmodern? He said, I'm sick and tired hearing Jesus died for your sins. Jesus died for your sins. And then he acted like Christianity's got to be more relevant than that. We've got to stop going back to an ancient book. And it's just like, Rob Bell, what are you talking about? And then eventually he denied the eternal conscious torment. Said eventually everybody's going to be saved. Uh, let me tell you something. If you get tired of hearing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, 
I'm going to have a hard time believing you're even saved. Okay? And um, how can you get tired of the gospel? I remember Pastor Sheffield, the guy was in his 80s, Clear Creek Baptist Church. He used to uh, preach there. He planted that church and preached there, and then he handed it off to Pastor Eckley. And, um, but, uh, but this, this dude, I mean, you, you guys know, you know, the, ever since the Chuck Laverty days, now I'm a crybaby. I used to be Phil Fernandez, a New Jersey guy who never cried, okay? God had to teach me how to turn the other cheek, and I asked him to take away my pride, and he's still working on taking it away, but first thing he did, he turned me into a crybaby. I, I see a little baby, and I start thinking, you know, created in God's image. Human life is sacred, and I get choked up. And, um, but, um, and, I for, and I forgot where I was going. Oh, yeah, now I know. With Pastor Sheffield, the guy's in his age. He did better than me. You know, when I cry during a sermon, everything shuts down, or a wedding. Everything shuts down. It's like, okay, Fernandez has got to get himself together before he can. And it usually only takes a second or two, but Pastor Sheffield, he was an old pro, this preacher. He could weep and still preach without missing a beat. If you, if you listened to it back then in the 1980s on audio cassettes, if you don't know what that is, uh, research it on Google. And, uh, but, but if you listened to it on audio cassettes, you didn't even know he was crying during the message. Okay? Um, you listen to me on the radio, you know I'm crying. Okay? But this guy, every time he quoted, you see, was probably every four or five sermons, every time he quoted John 3.16, he reached into his pocket, he pulled out a handkerchief, and without skipping a beat, he would wipe the tears from his eyes because he never got tired of John 3.16. He never got tired of hearing that Jesus died for our sins. If Rob Bell got tired of it, well, I'm going to pray for your salvation, dude, because as far as I can see, you're not saved now. One of the, he was one of the biggest leaders in the evangelical church. Uh, one faith, Bell... One faith, and you gave it up because you were friends with Oprah. Okay? You give up the one faith, you're giving up on the one Lord. Let me tell you something. Oprah Winfrey is powerful in the eyes of the world. She's a billionaire. She's not my Lord. My Lord is King Jesus. And since my Lord is King Jesus, I'm not giving up on the faith like the Rob Bells of this world. And... Um, for I delivered to you a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was predicted in the Old Testament. Okay? And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. And it gives you a summary list of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Paul lets us know in uh, verse 11, Therefore, whether it was I... Whether it was I or they, the apostles, so we preach and so you believe. He's saying this is the earliest preaching of the gospel that Christ, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that's what Christ means, that he died on the cross for our sins, fulfilling the Old Testament passages, that he was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to many people. He's saying that's an overview of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, we don't have time to look at that, but John reads it every time we receive the Lord's Supper, verses 23 to 26. He passed on the tradition that he got directly from the Lord. 
about on the night that the Lord was betrayed. He took the bread, broke it, said, this represents my body broken for you. He took the fruit of the vine. This represents my blood which was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Now do this in remembrance of me until I return in glory. That was part of the faith. Celebrating the Lord's Supper and recognizing that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. You know, the world thinks we're nuts when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. What should our response be? Who cares? You think I'm an idiot? You think I'm a weirdo? I've got my one Lord. And he loved me so much, he had his body broken for us and his blood shed for us. Okay? Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 4-6, to that there's, there's one, one God. There's only one God and one Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who is the creator uh, of the universe. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, the baptismal formula. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The doctrine of the Trinity was already there. Okay, just like in this passage, you know, uh, one, one spirit in uh, Ephesians 4, uh, we're told our unity is one spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. They knew the Trinity, they didn't have it fully spelled out, but they knew that somehow the one true God exists as three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, um, and so Jesus said, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach everybody, teach these disciples all that I taught you. Okay? So these are just some of the things. I mean, uh, Colossians chapter 1, I mean, you can get into some heavy stuff that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he's the creator of the universe. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first one to, to rise from the dead, never to, never to die again. And, um, and so what are these truths that they were teaching even before the New Testament was completed? And, uh, and I, I've given you in your notes a list of, of them. They were teaching the doctrine of the Trinity, that the one true God is three equal persons. Um, you know, I, you don't have to get to the Council of Nicaea to find the doctrine of the Trinity, but what they did was they would, they would constantly teach... Look, God, the Bible teaches God is, there's only one God. Okay? But they also teach, but the Father is called God, the Son is called God, and the Holy Spirit is called God. Oh, by the way, there are three distinct persons. Now, you put that all together, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? So isn't it nice that we can say, I believe in the Trinity, rather than just saying, well, I believe there's only one God. And I believe the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But they're three distinct persons. Well, we don't have to say all that now. We just sum it up in the Trinity. But I can go to Ignatius' writings, the seven letters of Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, Assyria, a church that used to have two guys there named Paul and Barnabas just 30 years earlier. Pretty good church. And they're not going to make a slouch the bishop. And um, he writes seven letters while he was en route to be fed the wild beast. And, um, and so, um, but Ignatius, he keeps calling Jesus. He's arguing that Jesus really became a man. 
because he's refuting the, the docetist heresy that Jesus only pretended to be a man. But he keeps talking about Jesus as his great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, over and over again. So you can find even in his writings, he calls God the Father God, he calls the Holy Spirit God, he calls Jesus God, but he says there's only one God, but he talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as three distinct persons. But the early church, they were kind of reluctant to pull it all together in case they get something wrong, but eventually their hands were forced by heretics like, like Arius, the Arian heresy, that taught Jesus is a lesser God, the first thing God created, then Jesus created everything else. The Council of Nicaea, they had to refute that. And um, so they, their hands were forced by the heretics to say, you know what, we need to systematize what the Bible teaches here. Okay, But with these basic Christian beliefs, the doctrine of the Trinity, creation by God, they didn't believe in evolution back then. They, they taught that man is fallen and sinful, and he can't save himself. Salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. Okay? They taught that Jesus was born of a virgin, and that Jesus is fully God, even though he became a man. He added a human nature without subtracting from his divine nature. That he died as a substitute for us. He took our punishment for us, died on the cross for our sins. Uh, it's all based, none of it, none of these, this faith, this creed, this ancient creed, none of it would make sense unless they held the biblical inerrancy that the Bible's God's word totally without error. Okay? So if it's taught in the Bible, we're not even going to question it. Um, that Jesus would visibly return to earth, that he bodily rose from the dead, all of this, I call it the ten basic Christian beliefs. Okay? And you might, you might say, well, you know, I bet somebody could, could reject one or two of them and still be a Christian. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's... It's hypothetically possible for somebody to deny the virgin birth and still believe Jesus is God and to, to maybe not believe the Bible's inerrant. Maybe the Bible contains a few errors. Yeah, that guy could be a Christian, but you'll never see that guy get behind this pulpit and preach. Because you're going down. And once you say, there's, yeah, there's at least one error in the Bible, there could be errors in the Bible. How do you know John 3.16 is not one of those errors? And, um, and so I think that we should just stick to this, this core right here, okay? Now let me say this. You can hold to that core and still might not be saved if you add other doctrines that contradict it and take from it. And that's why I left the Roman Catholic Church. Because they're saying, well, salvation is only through the cross of Christ. But then they're adding, you know, prayers to the saints and prayer to Mary and getting punished for your sins in purgatory because I guess Jesus wasn't enough on the cross and stuff like that. So Now, there are Catholics that are true believers, but that's despite some of these additional teachings that the Church of Rome has added. So, uh, so I want to see people holding to these basic Christian beliefs, the one faith that defines us as Christians, at the same time, I also don't want to see people adding stuff to it that ends up watering down these doctrines, if not obliterating them. And so whether we're Baptists or Christ-centered Catholics or Presbyterians or Methodists or Lutherans or Pentecostals or Charismatics, if we hold to the central teachings of Christ that compile the one true faith, then we are united in the body of Christ. 
you know, one guy posted something that, um, if this exact passage we're preaching on, he posted just a couple days ago on Facebook, and say, if there's one church, then, you know, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, then how come there's, you know, and he said, like, you know, 25,000 denominations, all this other, it's because there are disagreements on the, on uh, the non-essentials, okay? Um, and so I don't see that as disunity. I mean, the Catholic Church says we got one pope, so we're all united. No, you're not. You know, if you take the tw top 20 Roman Catholic universities in America today, um, you'll be lucky if one of them still teaches traditional Roman Catholicism. So they're not even united on teaching Roman Catholic. So they got a, they got a so-called infallible pope, but you know, 80% of the Catholics don't even, don't even care what he says. You got pro-abortion Catholics. What is that? They, the Catholic Church has uh, as little unity as we Protestants have, but we can have true unity among Protestants if we hold to the one faith delivered to the saints and then put up with our brothers and sisters who may disagree with us on whether or not we should baptize infants, who uh, uh, disagree with us on certain gifts of the Spirit or whatever it may be. Okay, Our unity in Christ uh, needs to come through. And so we have one faith. Okay, And uh, if you, I've, done, I've done a whole series on this. If you go to Sermon Audio and then you click on Sermons and then you click on Series... You can find series where I, t I cover basic Christian doctrines and, um, and look into this uh, for yourself. Uh, we can give you lecture notes on basic Christian beliefs. We can give you a one-page handout on basic Christian beliefs. Maybe I should have, maybe I'll, I'll make a copy of that for um, uh, people because I give the verses that you can look this stuff up. And Paul Paul's basically saying, look, there's only one body and one spirit, the Holy Spirit, and one hope of our calling, and one Lord, and one faith. And how do we announce to the world that we're of this one faith? And now we're coming out of the world into the unity in Christianity? We do that through one baptism. Okay? Now this can either mean water baptism or spirit baptism. Spirit baptism is when you get immersed in the Holy Spirit when you first trust in Jesus for salvation. The book of Acts was a transitional period because you had believers in Christ, but the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. Okay? And um, so, on the Feast of Pentecost, uh, Jesus had to baptize the church with the Holy Spirit. Okay? And Jesus had predicted this in John chapters 14, 15, and 16, the night he was betrayed. And... Um, and then it seems that God postponed that, that coming of the Holy Spirit into the lives of the first uh, Samaritan believers and the first Gentile believers so the apostles were there to witness it, that, wow, Gentiles are getting saved and filled with the Holy Spirit even before they get circumcised and convert to Judaism. I guess the Lord is telling us that Gentiles don't have to convert to become Jews in order to trust in Jesus for salvation. And so spirit baptism, when we trust in Jesus for salvation, the Holy Spirit gives us the new birth. Okay? 
and we receive eternal life. I don't think what that, what that's, that's what Paul's talking about. I think what Paul's talking about is the water baptism, the outward sign that symbolizes our inward regeneration. So water baptism sim- symbolizes that we already believe and symbolizes our spirit baptism. It's, it's, you know, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That separates us from the world and says, we love you, but we don't belong to you anymore. And Paul's going to follow up on this theme later on in this chapter, where, where Jesus takes through his death and resurrection, he has taken captivity captive. He's taken captives from the world and brought them into his body in the church. And, um, and we identify that one, that one baptism. Uh, look at, uh, I don't even have it in the notes there, but look at Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, whoever confesses, Jesus is talking. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now keep in mind, Peter denied Jesus three times and he's in heaven now. So what Jesus is talking about, is your life characterized by denying or acknowledging Jesus before men. Okay? Now, does that mean you have to share Jesus with others to earn your salvation? No. Jesus and James, do you realize this? When you study their, uh, Jesus' teachings and the book of James, you find out they focused more on answering the question, how do I know that I'm saved? What are the characteristics of a true believer? Like Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, James talking about faith without works is dead. Paul focused on what must I do to be saved. And then he talked to you about now that you're saved, how you should act. And so basically, this is not how you get saved. But this is characteristic of true believers, that true believers confess and acknowledge Jesus as their Savior before others. You know what? Some of us are shy. I'm, I'm not shy, but some of us are shy and real quiet. And that might be tough. They might say, well, I'm a believer. and I'm supposed to confess Jesus. By the way, some of the most powerful witnesses of Christ that we have in our church right here, let alone the church throughout the world, are quiet people. Okay? But just as you're being nice and you're serving people, let them know you're a Christian so Jesus gets the glory, not yourself. Okay, again, it's uh, what Matthew 5, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus said when others would see our good works, what would they do? Matthew 5, verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, and what? Glorify your Father in heaven, not glorify you. Well, how are they going to glorify your Father in heaven unless you're proclaiming, letting them know that you're a Christian? Okay? We've we got to be kind of like Tim Tebow's. 
It's great to be a nice guy that everybody loves, well, almost everybody. Um, it's great to be a nice guy who does good things for people. He has proms for special people. Okay? Who else would have thought of that but Tim Tebow? Um, but everybody knows the reason why he does good stuff is because he loves Jesus. Amen. And it's God working through him. Jesus has got to get the glory. Tim Tebow... If Tim Tebow found out that all the people that have been backing him and supporting him over the decades, last decade or so, um, were doing it to bring him glory, he would weep. You want to see a grown man weep? Big muscular guy, he would weep. Because he lives to, to glorify his king. He's got one Lord and one faith. And um, But uh, I'm telling you, the, the early church, we... You want to make sure people understand the gospel message before you baptize them? But that doesn't necessitate a one-year course. Okay? And then the guy gets sick and misses a month of the course, so he has to retake it another year, and then after a while he just never gets baptized. You know in the early church when the apostles would baptize somebody? They preached the gospel message, you accepted, you got dunked right after that. And you might say, well, then you, you, might, you might baptize people who aren't real believers. Yeah, in good company, Peter and John baptized Simon the sorcerer. It wasn't until after, or Philip baptized them, I think. But, but it wasn't until after that that they realized this guy's not even a true believer. He's a heretic. Okay? And, um, but I'm telling you when, you, when someone trusts in Jesus for salvation... You need to teach them about baptism and get them baptized right away. Because what is baptism? It's, it's for a lot of people, it's that first opportunity to publicly confess Jesus as your Lord before others. And ho hopefully that public confession of Jesus will become a habit in your life. I like the Baptists because they, they think baptism is so important, they call themselves the Baptists. Okay, and you know these guys. Well, hey, you know Jesus? Yeah, and I'm trusting Him. So you baptized, and the baptism is very important to them. But they shout louder than anybody uh, in Christendom today that water baptism does not save. A lot of people think, well, water baptism doesn't save, so it's not important. Oh yeah, so you're going to trust in Jesus for salvation. You're going to call Him as Lord, and then disobey Him when He says, "Now you got to get baptized." I mean, you're, all, you're, you're off to a really bad start if you're going to start your walk with Jesus living in willful, habitual disobedience to Jesus because you say that baptism isn't, water baptism doesn't save, so it's not really important. Let me tell you, if you're saved, you don't ask yourself, what's the minimal I have to believe and do to be saved? If you're really saved, you don't ask questions like that. If you're saved... The kind of questions you ask, what do I have to think, say, and do to be pleasing to my king? Because I love him with everything that I got. I live for him and for his glory. And, um, and so Paul's saying, man, we do, when people, when non believers see us dunking people underwater, 
baptized, and they think, what a bunch of weirdos. You know what the church should say? Great. Because I get uncomfortable when you think I'm cool. If the world thinks that Tim Tebow's cool, Tim Tebow's not doing his job. If the world thinks we're cool. Now, by the way, I'm not saying go out of your way to make people hurt you, uh, make people hate you. I'm not saying that, but it does come with the turf. So, you know, for every Christian that's out there that really loves me, and then for every non-believer that's out there and says, Fran's a good guy. I think he's a nut, but he's a cool guy. He's all crazy about this Jesus stuff, but he's a good guy despite that. I really like him. He's really kind to me. For every one that you find like that, you'll have people who would, you know. I wish I had a dime for every person who told me in different words. One told me in exactly this word, these words, that we need to, you know, we need to rid the earth of you. Okay? Um, John 15, 18, you find the world hates you, notice hated me before it hated you. When you got water baptized, I don't know if you realize it, when you got water baptized, you declared war on the world. You said, I don't belong to you anymore. I worship the crucified and risen king. I have one Lord and his name is Jesus. And I will serve him till I die. And how do you announce that to the world? You announce that to the world. And to the church. You announce to the church, I'm with you now. I'm a believer. I'm going to get water baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. I am announcing that I have now come out of the world. I've left the world behind. And I am part of the body of Christ. You have declared war on the world. This is when, when Jesus announced to the apostles that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church. It was at Caesarea Philippi, the most demonic place on the planet Earth, at the base of Mount Hermon. It's, you can ask my wife, it's a scary place to be. I'm glad our tour guide uh, took us there and during it was daylight. Um, but Jesus declared war on Satan and his demons and the Old Testament, sons of God and the Nephilim. He declared war on the demonic realm and the forces of evil. It was a place dedicated to the worship of Pan, the false god of Hades. We get, we get our depictions of Satan with horns and with a tail. That's because we... The, Christians said, the early church said, what the uh, pagans call Pan, that's actually Satan. And Jesus could go there, the headquarters of Satan on a planet Earth, and say the gates of hell, the gates of Hades would not prevail against his church. When we get water baptized, we're, we're telling the world which side we're on. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're pledging allegiance to the Lord Jesus and saying, you know, when I got water baptized and before that when I got saved, it stuck. I believe. I have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And then Paul says in Ephesians 4, 
Reason why we be, should be united, one body, one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and then verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So we have one God and Father uh, of all. Now all three members of the Trinity, all three persons of the Trinity have been mentioned here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And um, you see, Paul's saying, look, one God and Father of all. Uh, the pagans thought there were different gods for different nations. And Paul's saying, no, there's one creator God. He is Yahweh, um, one God and Father of all. He is the creator. He created all, all he created the whole universe, he created all mankind, and then he recreated all believers when we trusted in Jesus. One God and Father of all. He is over all. He is sovereign over all creation, and he is supposed to be sovereign over his church. One God and Father of all, and then he is through all, he works his will through believers. He sustains the universe, but he also sustains the church and works through all believers, and he's in all. He indwells all believers to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Okay? Um, look, and we'll close with this. Look at uh, Acts 17. Acts 17, 26 to 28. Paul here is talking to uh, the Greeks in Athens at um, the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where they would debate philosophical issues. Now, when he gets there, he finds idols everywhere. It was actually said that during the time of Christ, there were more idols, there were more idols in Athens than there were people. More false gods than there were people. Okay, so that's how you know Greek philosophy with the most brilliant wisdom of the ancient Greek philosophers actually lost the battle to mythology and paganism because Athens was their headquarters and the pagan gods won. Why was that? Why did the superstitions win? Because Jesus said man does not live on bread alone but in every utterance of the mouth of God. The philosophers were just trying to explain everything natural, naturalistically. They didn't appeal to the supernatural and to God. And, um, and so the pagans, so Greek philosophy, the Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle's could not defeat ancient paganism. Guess what did? The one faith. The Christian worldview. Christianity, biblical Christianity, and um, so in Acts 17, he sees all these statues of false gods. And he tells me, he says, well, you know, this is really impressive. You guys are really religious. He's like, I said, I'm glad you're thinking about spiritual issues. But I noticed you got a statue to the unknown God. Well, the one God you don't know, because they were worried. We might have missed one. The one God you don't know, I know, and I'm going to tell you about him. And he says this in verse 26. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined 
their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So he was basically saying uh, he's not a local deity. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth, who created the universe. So that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So God is the father of all creation, but then he becomes even more intimate as our father in the church. Okay? So all men and women are sons of God through creation, but that's not good enough. We need to be sons and daughters of God through the recreation, the regeneration, the new birth that comes only through faith in Jesus. And so in conclusion, Paul urges all believers to openly express the unity that we already have with other believers. We actually have this unity. Paul mentioned, you know, uh, seven different areas where we have this unity in Christ. Now he's saying outwardly express, openly express that unity we already have. And this unity, you know, Jesus on the night he was betrayed, John 17, verses 20 and 21, he prayed that we would be united. As Jesus and the Father are one, he wanted us to be that united. Uh, and this unity is a tremendous testimony of Jesus' power uh, to the unsaved world. In Christ, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we have unity. We must recognize this unity and live consistently with it. So in John 13, 35, Jesus told us, the world will know that you're my disciples when you have love. For one another. Jesus has separated us. That's what it means to be a saint. To be separated for God's holy purposes. Jesus has separated us, separated us from the world and we are united in him. One Lord, one spirit, one body, one faith, one hope of our calling, one God and Father of all. We have this unity. Now Paul says, now act upon that. Love one another and show the world that you're my disciples. And um, I am so happy that we're getting a building because now we don't have to just meet on Sundays anymore. We can get together a few more times. We can have a place, an open door policy, where we can have Bible studies and, and breakfast and things of that sort. Okay? Um, let's not worship a building. Let's remember the church is the body of all true believers. But if God allows us to have that building to further serve him in a more powerful way through the power of the Holy Spirit and for God's glory, then so be it. But we got one faith, brothers and sisters. And we got one Lord. And we announced that he is our Lord when we got, took that one baptism. And so we need to be united. Let me tell you, maybe you're a Baptist and Pentecostals get on your nerves. Someday you might thank God because you, you get in prison for preaching the gospel and they actually stick a Pentecostal in your cell with you. Amen. 
They go, look, look at our, our buddy Robert. He's got a Wiccan in his prison cell with him right now. And, um, but um, I think uh, the more united the world gets in its hatred of Christianity, all of a sudden the differences we have with our brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, from other churches are going to kind of dissipate. And we're going to see our unity in Christ. And why? Because we got one faith. We got one baptism. We have one Lord, and He is good, but He is not tame. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, help us to see the unity that we have in Christ. Help us to see that we have one Lord, only one Lord. Help us to see that we have only one faith. Help us to see that there's just one baptism, one God and Father of all, that we are one body with one spirit, the Holy Spirit, and we have one hope of our calling. Help us, Lord, to be united to one another in the mission of the gospel and discipleship of others. Help us to be united and express this unity. Help us to love one another as you have loved us so that the world will know that we are your disciples. And I pray, Lord, in the, the difficult times that are ahead, that you would help us to be united in Christ and to proclaim the gospel message and disciple others and to be all that you called us to be, to be the body of Christ, uh, even if the world condemns us for it. We love you so much, Lord. Please empower us to love you more and to love each other as you loved us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, God.